If you would turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17, uh, Exodus 17 verses 1 through 7 will be our text this Lord's Day. Uh, As you turn there, I want to mention a resource to you uh, here around in the uh, sanctuary as well as just outside the door there at the Welcome Center. Uh, We've got these little handouts, uh, Who is Jesus? Uh, This is a little booklet that's a very clear presentation to the gospel. And we've put on here an invitation to our Good Friday service and then inside Uh, There's some information and an invitation to our VBS that's coming up in April and a little refrigerator magnet that has our church information and worship times. Um, We put these out very simply so that you might take them and give them to friends as an introduction to the gospel, as an invitation to our church, and so feel free to take as many of these as you would like. Uh, I'll put this one down here. Like I said, we've got some here and in the Welcome Center as well uh, as we seek to invite people to these opportunities to hear more about the gospel of our Lord Jesus. If you've been with us in our study of Exodus, hopefully the gospel has been very clear to you. We've seen a picture of the faithfulness of God. As we've looked through this book of the Bible, we've seen how God has been faithful to rescue His people out of their slavery, uh, to bring them on their journey towards the promised land. Uh, We've seen how God has been faithful to to rescue them time and time again. He brought plagues against the Egyptians. Uh, When it looked like they were at a point where death was on one side with a sea they couldn't cross and death was on the other side with an army that was coming after them, he opened up the sea and they walked through it. And God was faithful even to destroy their enemies in those waters. We've seen him faithfully provide bread. We saw last Lord's Day how he provided them that day of rest, that Sabbath. And they were able to rest on that day because he had provided a double portion on the sixth day. So we consistently have seen this picture in the book of Exodus of how faithful God is. And at the same time, we've seen this picture in the book of Exodus of how weak the Israelites' faith is of how they struggle to have faith, of how oftentimes God provides for them, and then the very next day or a few days later, they begin to moan and groan and complain once again. But what we've seen here is really a picture of what many of us in this room experience. God is completely faithful to us, and yet we struggle in our faith at times. At times we may feel that our faith is strong, but oftentimes our faith is very weak. But the great comfort that I hope you receive from God's Word today is this, that it's not the strength of our faith that saves us. It is the object of our faith that actually saves us. And so if our faith is that of a mustard seed, the the issue is who are we placing our faith in? And so I hope this morning as we look to God's Word that we will answer that with putting our faith in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7, and out of reverence for God's Word, if you would stand, if you're able, as I read this text for us. And this is what God's Holy Word says to us. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, 
what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, and taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? If you would, pray with me. Father, I pray that today, through the power of Your Holy Spirit, that You might enable us, that You might help us to trust in You with all of our heart. I pray, God, that we would not be a people who lean on their own understanding, but that in all of our ways, that we would acknowledge You. And as we do that, Lord, I pray that You would make our paths straight. Lord, I pray that You would help us to flee the temptation that is so often in front of us to be wise in our own eyes. I pray, God, that we would fear You and that we would turn away from evil. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. As the parents of four children, Sandy and I spent a great amount of time and energy and effort on the education of our kids. And we have one preparing to go into college. We have one who's just started high school. We have another in middle school, another in elementary school. And so it seems that much of our time, much of our day, many of our hours are spent Uh, talking about education, thinking about education, asking about homework, going over homework, helping to get ready for projects or tests, going over the results of projects or tests. And we do these things because we, we want our kids to have education. We want our kids to learn and to grow and to develop and mature. Uh, That's why we take an interest in the education of those around us. We want to help them grow and we see the value of education in that process. As we come to this continued experience that the Israelites are having in the wilderness, we come to a place where where they too are receiving an education. And it is their Father God who is ensuring that they get this education. God uses tests with His people in order to grow them, in order to show them their need to trust in Him more. He wants to educate His people and grow them into maturity. And we see that process taking place through passages like the one I just read for us today. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preacher, said this about this text. He says, Israel gained by education... The Lord was not going to lead a mob of slaves into Canaan to go and behave like slaves there. They had to be tutored. The wilderness was the Oxford and Cambridge for God's students. There they went to the university and He taught and trained them and they took their degree before they entered the promised land. And hear this. There's no university for a Christian like that of sorrow and trial. There's no university for the Christian like that of sorrow and trial. And so what we see God doing is using these times of trial and suffering and sorrow, these times of testing, in order to grow His people. As I've said before, it wasn't just that God was taking His people out of Egypt. God was taking Egypt out of His people. 
He was growing them in their faith. He was maturing them, just like He is us today. For those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, we are in a sanctification process. We are in a process of growing in righteousness, growing in obedience, and fleeing sin. And this, too, is an education that we receive. And so as we look to these things today, I want us to consider... One, how God is using this trial, this testing in the Israelites' life, and along with that, how God uses trials and testing in our life in hopes that these things might help us to focus on the gospel. And we'll again, both point one there in your outline, the, the point that we see here is that God tests His people. God tests His people. This is very much a test from the Lord. We read about it a chapter ago in Exodus 16.4 where God told Moses that He was going to test His people whether they would walk in His law or not. When we see this phrase testing throughout the Scripture, we see it in the New Testament. 1 Peter 4, we read this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And so what we find in God's Word is that testing is very much a part of the walk of faith. Now think about a test. In school, why do we receive tests? Well, when they're used properly, we receive tests to evaluate what we know, to, to reveal what we've learned, and also to show us things we still need to learn. And so tests are an important part of education because they help us to see, okay, I understand this, but I don't understand this. Here's the area I really need to grow in. Well, God uses tests in our walk of faith in very much the same way. And he already said in Exodus 16 that He was going to test His people to really see what was in their heart. Were they going to walk with Him or not? But He's also testing His people so that He might grow them so that He might help them to develop in this area of trusting Him. And when it comes to this area of trusting Him, this was an area that needed great attention, and so it had already received quite a bit. God had educated His people in this way. Think of the lessons He's already taught them. There they are in slavery in Egypt, and God brings His deliverer Moses and brings these miraculous plagues in order to deliver them out of Egypt, out of their slavery. And so we look at that and we might think, well man, that, that's quite a lesson on trusting in God. And yet, they struggle to trust Him. They get to the Red Sea. They look to the sea. They can't cross the sea on their own. They look back. This army's pursuing them. And they begin to grumble and complain. But what does God do? Again, God is faithful. God shows them that He is trustworthy. He opens up the water and they walk through the water. Not long after that, they're thirsty. What does God do? He turns the bitter water sweet. Then they're hungry. What does God do? He rains bread down from heaven so that they might eat. And so God is taking His people into the classroom in the wilderness. And He's showing them with lesson after lesson how they can trust in Him. And yet, when they are tested, we see that this still is an area they needed to grow in. In fact, you might say that in Exodus 17, we find them very much in their elementary years of their education. And so we come to this point now where God gives them another test Another opportunity for growth. Verse 1 tells us that the congregation of the people of Israel was now moving from the wilderness of sin according to the command of God. So they are obeying God. 
But as soon as they get to Rephidim and start to camp there, they find that there's no water for them to drink. Now, when you and I read this, as we know what the text continues to say, we might hear something kind of like that emergency broadcast message. This is a test. This is only a test. Now, this reminder that, of course, God is going to provide for you. Look at all the ways He's provided so far. Look at all the ways He's protected you so far. And yet, we see the people very quickly in response to this, they begin to grumble and to complain. In fact, what we see is that as God is testing His people, His people then in turn begin to test God. And that brings us to the second point there in your outline. We see here that God is put on trial by His people. Point two, God is put on trial by His people. Rephidim was supposed to be a place of testing for God's people. We heard that in our call to worship in Psalm 95. It was supposed to be a place of testing. But what we see is this passage is about people testing God. You could say it this way. Here we see God put on trial by His people. And a lot of this comes down to the language. Look at verse 2 there. Verse 2 tells us that the people quarreled with Moses. And that term in the Hebrew for quarreled means to institute legal proceedings against. It was the term used when someone would file suit against someone. And so what's taking place here isn't so much of quarreling like we might imagine kids quarreling or people quarreling or people arguing. What's taking place here is a very legal process where God's people are coming to Moses and they are making a complaint against God. Now you may read this and say, well, it looks like they're complaining against Moses. It says the people quarreled with Moses. But remember, Moses was the mediator. Moses was the one who stood before God's people on behalf of God. And he was the one who stood before God on behalf of the people. And so when the people come and they file this suit against Moses, they are filing this suit against the Lord. That's why we read in verse 7, it says they tested the Lord. So they're not just testing Moses here. They're bringing this complaint against the Lord. And what is it? Well, the first part of the complaint is really a demand. Look at verse 2. They say, give us water to drink. And so the very first thing they do is demand their rights. And you might think of it this way. God's people feel they are owed something. God, we, we faithfully obeyed you, they might say. We, we, we walked out of Egypt. We, we had everything we needed there, but we, we trusted you, and you said you bring us to this, this good land of promise, you take care of us, and we've been so obedient and faithful, and yet here we are, and we don't have anything to drink. God, you need to uphold your end of the bargain. You owe us something here. Give us some water. But it gets, <laughs> it gets a lot deeper than that. Notice verse 3. And not only do they demand something, then they complain to God. This is, this is them issuing a formal complaint. This is what the suit is about in legal terms. They look to God and say, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So, so they look to God and they say, God, you are out to kill us. Our complaint is, you, God, are trying to kill us. 
We have done what we were supposed to do. God, you need to do what you were supposed to do. And what we see here is in this midst of testing, rather than respond to that test in growth in their faith, they respond to this test by putting God on trial. We would never do that, would we? You think about all the times that we've been tempted, or we've heard others look to trials and suffering and sorrow and grief and devastation in their life. And so often in those times, they begin to question God. God, if, if you are really good, then why are you allowing this? God, if you, if you really love, then why would you allow this? Or we're tempted to think that, that we've done what we're supposed to do, so now it's time to, for God to do what He's supposed to do. God, I, I've tried to do things the right way, so my baby's not supposed to be sick. I, I've, I've tried to follow Your Word, so my loved ones aren't supposed to suffer. I'm doing things the right way at work. I'm not cutting corners or lying or cheating or stealing or trying to get ahead in unethical ways like so many others, and yet it seems that everything's going wrong for me. And that's not right, God. And whether it's water, or money, or health, relationships, comfort, whatever it might be, we make our demands of God. And we put Him on trial. Shortly after World War II, there was a play that was produced in Germany called The Sign of Jonah, written by a man named Gunther Rutenborn. Rutenborn's play came just after the war had ended and the German people began to discover the atrocities that had taken place. You see, there were many things that happened at camps like Auschwitz that many of the people were completely unaware of. And so after the war was over and after the truth became known, many people began to ask the questions, whose fault is this? Who bears the responsibility? And so what Rutenborg did in his play is he, he gave that question to the characters. He gave that question and invited the audience into it. Who, who is to blame for this? And so there among the cast members you had people like a, a housewife who, who would explain, well, I was just trying to make rations and take care of my family and I didn't have time to, to try to help these other people. And you had the industrialist who was just trying to keep up with the demands of the steel needed for the war, not thinking so much about what was happening at a camp down the road. You had the soldier who was simply following orders. And so each one in this play begins to look to the other and defend their own innocence. Point the finger at others. And the accused become the accusers and begin to indict one another until soon they all realize that in differing degrees they each bear some guilt. Some for things they said, some for things they didn't say, some for things they did, others for what they failed to do. But as the play progresses, one by one, they start to come up with the same excuse. The blame goes higher than us. The blame goes higher than the housewife and the industrialist, higher than the soldier, higher than the army, higher than the party. And they begin to say this, quote, The real blame is much higher up 
God is to blame. He is the one to be put on trial. And so often, don't we do that same thing in our trials, in our suffering, in our distress? We make our demands. And we issue our complaints. We think that we've done what we were supposed to do and upheld our end of it. And we look to God and say, God, why? Why would you allow this in my life, God? And we have those moments where we begin to wonder, Lord, if you really love me, why? <laughs> I've tried my part, so God, God, why? And, and rather than grow through these trials, we point the finger at God through these trials. C.S. Lewis, in a collection of essays called God in the Dock, wrote about this. In his vernacular, the dock referred to the enclosure in a criminal court where the defendant was placed. And this is what Lewis said. The ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge and God is in the dock. And he is quite a kindly judge if God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war and poverty and disease. He is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. And friends, this is so often where we go. Rather than look to God as the judge, we look to ourselves as the judge. We live in a culture, we live in a world where everybody tells us we are the main character. It's all about us. And we open up a holy book that says, wait a second, it's not about us, it's about Him. He's the main character. And our flesh pushes back against that. See, when we are the main character of the story, then it's all about our happiness. It's all about what we think we deserve. And when things don't go our way, then we just need to move the characters around, don't we? And what the Scripture says overwhelmingly to us is the problem fundamentally comes down to this. That God is not the problem. We are the problem. And that leads us to the next point there in your outline. Point three. See, God's people are the guilty ones. And Moses here cries out, they're, they're almost ready to stone me. What he's saying is that in judicial terms, that they have found God guilty. And they can't kill God. But they can kill God's mediator. They can kill God's messenger. And so the verdict is, God, you did the wrong thing here. So God, we're going to enact justice and we're going to pick up stones and we're going to kill the one you've sent to deliver us. Does that sound vaguely familiar at all? God sends to His people a deliverer and they pick up stones to kill the deliverer. We see here that People very much are the guilty ones, but, but I want to make sure you understand where we're going here. I, I'm not suggesting that God withheld water from His people because of their sin. That, that's not how the text reads here. So I don't think this is a situation where God is punishing His people for their disobedience. 
Have they been disobedient and rebellious? Absolutely. But the text doesn't suggest to us that because of that, God says to them, well, I'm just not going to give you water anymore. See, that's, that's the kind of thing we would do. You haven't done what I wanted? Well, let me show you who's boss. But that's not what we see from a benevolent God. Now, what we see from God is that He's not punishing the Israelites. He is testing the Israelites to grow them in their faith. And it's very important we make this distinction because if we don't, we completely misunderstand suffering in our life. And there are plenty of false gospel teachers out there who will help us to misunderstand suffering in our life. That there are plenty of people's books you can buy and shows you can watch and garbage you can eat who will tell you that your suffering, that your sickness, that your struggles completely and 100% are because of your lack of faith. And if you just had more faith, those things wouldn't happen. So they will look to you in the children's hospital as you hold your baby with wires and tubes coming out of their body and they'll say, well, you need to have more faith. And they'll say to you as you get off the phone with the doctor who's just giving you news you never expected to get and they'll say, well, if you just trusted God more. And I want you to hear me. That is garbage. That is not gospel. It is garbage. And we in the church have taken it and eaten it like it's a steak. And here's the fundamental reason. Because we want to think we can do something to change our circumstances. And so we want to think, well, okay, maybe if I just wrote a bigger check, or maybe if I had more faith, then, then this person wouldn't want to suffer. And I don't want them to suffer. If my actions control everyone else's destinies, who am I? I'm God. And friends, I'm not God, and you're not either. And what the Scripture says clearly to us is that He will bring suffering and trials and things at times in order to grow us in our faith. And in those times, they may very well reveal our sin. And we see sin here in the life of God's people. But God's not withholding water from them because of their sin. This is an opportunity for them to trust in God. But make no doubt about it, they are guilty. They're guilty of nothing else of spiritual amnesia. I mean, they've completely forgotten about all the times God provided for them in the past. And they look to this thirst in their life, and they begin to say, well, God, you're trying to kill us out here. The psalmist writes of this in Psalm 106. He recounts God's saving works, how He delivered His people from the Egyptians, how they praised Him. But then he says this, but they soon forgot his works. And they did not wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness. And God put them to the test in the desert. And so they are guilty here, certainly. They're guilty of forgetting what God had done. We also see they're guilty of passing judgment on God. That they have stones in hand. They're ready to kill Moses. <laughs> They're pointing the finger at God. God has been put on trial. They've declared Him to be guilty. And the sentence is death. And now they would kill His representative. Friends, do you see that we're guilty of this as well? You and I in this room this morning, we are guilty 
of passing judgment on God? I mean, how many times have you and I questioned God and questioned His character and questioned His love and questioned His goodness and questioned His plan when things didn't go according to what we wanted His plan to be? And how many times have we been tempted just to walk away from all of it because this isn't how it's supposed to work out? How many times have we put God on trial? Romans chapter 9 says to us, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? And yet, how many times do we answer back to Him? And rather than deal with the guilt in our own lives, we just point the finger at God. Does God bring trial and suffering in our life as a direct result of our sin? That can be the case. But oftentimes, suffering and sickness and wickedness around us is the result of the fall, is the result of other people's sins. And God in those things is, is using them ultimately for His glory. When you think about the question that the disciples asked Jesus as they passed the man who was blind, and they said to Jesus, who, who sinned that this man is blind? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? And what does Jesus say to him? He says this is so that God might be glorified that that God's works might be displayed in him see there were people preaching a garbage gospel then too saying that he's blind because of his parents he's blind because of himself and Jesus answers very definitively no that's not why he's blind but in his blindness God can still receive glory and when we get past pointing the finger at God, we begin to see that God can receive glory in our suffering as well. But it has to begin with us understanding that we are a guilty party. That there's no one righteous in this room. Let me just ask the question, do, do any of you think that you're going to stand before God one day in your own effort? Not, not based on what Jesus did, but based on what you've done, that you're going to stand before God and say, oh God, yeah, I'm righteous too. Nice, you're holy, I'm holy. Oh, great to meet somebody finally that's holy like I am, you know. Perfect. Never done anything wrong. Does anybody want to come give a testimony of how you're perfect? How you're righteous? Anybody here going to write a book on how they've never done anything wrong in their entire life, never thought anything wrong? I've had the opportunity, as I mentioned before, to share the gospel many times, and I often will ask the question, do, do, do you believe that you're without sin? And, and I think in all the times, in all the places I've shared the gospel, I may have had one or two people who said to me, yeah, I've, I've never sinned. One of them just, you know, they were just saying whatever, but the other one was kind of thinking that, and so I just started to examine that a little bit, and I've shared this with you before. I said to them, listen, if I could put a device on you that would broadcast everything you think for the next couple of days, would you be willing to wear that around? No. no. Would, would you be willing to wear that? Right here, right now in church? Not me. I don't, know, I don't want you to know what I'm thinking while I'm preaching. That's how messed up I am. And I sure don't want to know what you're thinking while I'm preaching. Because I know how messed up I am and can infer how messed up you are. So the gospel is not, hey, all you perfect people, come on down. The gospel is, hey, all you messed up people, all you sinful people, all you wicked people, 
There is a better way. But the Scripture says completely no. None is righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. Romans 3. He continues to say in Romans 3.23, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the lack of water is a test. It's not a punishment, but the way that the people respond reveals just how guilty they are. And so often the way we respond to trial and suffering in our life, it reveals the sin in our own heart. And, and so here's what we might expect to happen. God tells Moses, I want you to walk through the people with your staff. Now, now just go with me for a second. I, I, don't, I don't know what Moses is thinking, so just hear me. This is, not from, this is what I'm thinking here. I imagine Moses might at least be tempted to think something along these lines. Here's God's people with rocks in their hands about to kill me. And God just told me to take the staff, the, the power, and to walk through them. And so maybe, just maybe, Moses is imagining a little, whoo! I'm just going to take them out right now. Maybe he's picturing, I mean, just Jedi moves, rocks flying, and this boom, they're all done. I mean, think of what that staff has been used for. Think of the plagues that God has brought on a people who were rebellious and disobedient. And here, what do we have? We have a rebellious, disobedient people with stones in hand ready to take Moses out. And, and I think Moses might be tempted to think that because that's exactly how we're tempted to think, isn't it? Vengeance is mine. Never mind the rest of it. But notice this, point four. This is how God responds. God offers His people salvation. He offers His people salvation through a rock. And so God's response to the desperate situation of His people who have just said to Him, God, you are guilty. God, you are to blame. God, this is your fault. Is to save them. So verse 5, Moses and the elders, they, they take that staff with which he struck the Nile. They, they walk down through the people and look at what happens. Verse 6, God says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And again, maybe Moses is thinking, yeah, and when you do, you're going to just wipe them all out. No, God says, I'll stand there on that rock and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. That doesn't make any sense. Because you and I would have knocked some people out. And God says what? I'm going to stand on the rock. I don't even know what that looks like. I mean, we see this picture of the presence of God before the people, and there's fire, and there's smoke, and there's His presence. Does all that just descend on the rock? I, I don't know. But he says real clearly, I'm going to stand on the rock. And Moses, you take that staff and don't strike the people. Moses, you strike me. Moses, you take that staff in your hand and you hit that rock. And when you do, water will come out. And that, to the world, makes no sense at all. But gospel-wise, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? 
we read this once already, but I want to take you there. Turn to 1 Corinthians 10. Paul does a wonderful job wrapping this up and putting a bow on it for us this morning. So, so while I might wonder what went through Moses' head, I don't need to wonder what was going through the mind of God because Paul wraps it up for us. 1 Corinthians 10. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all drank, or excuse me, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. It's very clear here what Paul's talking about. He's talking about the Exodus. He's talking about what we've been studying. He is pointing the finger back to what had happened. And then notice what he says in verse 4. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Anybody see that coming? Bunch of rebellious people in the wilderness pointing the finger at God. God, this is all your fault. God, you don't love us. You don't care for us. God, you deserve to be killed. God tells a servant, I want you to take that staff. I want you to go before the people. And I'm going to stand on the rock. And I want you to strike me, Paul. Because one day, one day, Moses... I'm going to strike my son on the cross. And there's going to be a sinful, rebellious, wicked people who are pointing their finger at me every step of the way. And I'm not going to strike them. I'm going to strike my son. Friends, that's, that's the big picture here. Okay? That the application of this passage is not go home and start hitting rocks with a stick. The application of this passage, it's right there, point five. It's this. Jesus is the rock that was struck for our salvation. Jesus is the rock that was struck for our salvation. Exodus 6, excuse me, 17 shows us clearly the people's sin. We know what they deserve for their sin. But yet God does what? He stands on the rock and He says to Moses, I want you to strike me so that my people might be saved. Pointing us towards what? Towards the cross. Because that's exactly what happens on the cross. Jesus, He who knew no sin, took on the condemnation that you and I deserve so that we might have what? Living water that would flow from His side. Isaiah wrote about this, Isaiah 53, but He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. 1 Peter 2, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Romans 5, 8, But God shows His love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so God gives His people, He gives us this morning this, this beautiful picture of the Gospel. Even... Even that when the rock was struck, that water came out. You remember what Jesus said about water? John 4, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
If you don't see it, friend, then the sin in your life has blinded you and has deafened you. It's so clear here that God is saying to His people then and to us now that salvation comes not through Him striking us down, but Him striking His Son on the cross that we might then have the living water that gives life. In that play that I mentioned earlier, Rutenborg went on to write that God was tried, He was found guilty, and this was his sentence, quote, to become a human being, a wanderer on earth, deprived of his rights, homeless, hungry, and thirsty, he himself shall die. And that's exactly what God does, isn't it? Not because he's done anything wrong, but in order to provide salvation for us in his own son, God came to bear our condemnation. And so the call this morning is this, in your suffering, in your sickness, in your worry, your anxiety, maybe some confusion, frustration, will, will you trust God today? Or will you test God today? Will you respond like these rebellious people in the wilderness by shaking your fist at God and saying, I deserve better. If you love me, then you would do this. Or friend, will you look to the Gospel today and trust in Christ? And let me just give you the fine print here. Trusting in Christ doesn't mean the cancer is going away. Trusting in Christ doesn't mean your baby's getting better. Trusting in Christ doesn't mean your marriage is happy. Trusting in Christ doesn't mean that all these things work out. Here and now in the temporary. But what trusting in Christ means is that one day, absolutely the cancer will be gone. And one day there will be no more sickness and no more hospitals. And one day there will be no more death and no more dying and no more mourning and no more tears. You know that, don't you? See, that's what we look towards. Well, we don't look towards some, some garbage gospel that says, if I just trust enough, it get a little better today. No, we look to the genuine gospel that says, if we have the faith of a mustard seed, it's not the strength of our faith, it's the object of our faith. And let me close by reminding you what the object of our faith tells us. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away 
and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God, and He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And He who is seated on the throne, He who makes all these things possible, He who bore the penalty of our sin, He who became our condemnation, He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And so will you trust them today? That is the call as we come into this time of response. If you would stand together as I pray for us. Father, I do pray that You would wake us from our slumber. That that You might shake us. that, that, That You might help us to just open up our eyes to see and our ears to hear our minds to comprehend the depths of what You're offering to us in the Gospel. But Lord, I stand here as one who has is, who is pointed the finger at You before. And when pain and grief and suffering have come, I, I, I Lord, have pointed the finger at You. And, and that is our temptation, God. And yet we see here that if there's a finger to be pointed, it is towards us. We, we are the guilty party. And yet, Lord, you, you demonstrate Your love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, while we were the guilty party, Christ died for us. Lord, You, you struck the rock. You struck Your Son that we might have life. Father, would You help us through the power of Your Spirit to respond to that offer of the Gospel and to trust You today. And for those of us who have responded to the Gospel and yet, Lord, we we struggle with these same things, these same questions, this this finger pointing. Lord, would You you call us to, to trust You today? And Lord, would You set our hearts and our minds towards a better day, a new heaven and a new earth and remind us that You indeed are making all things new. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.